Hi there, ho there, folks. Welcome to Remember That Guy, the sports podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I am one of your co-hosts, James, and uh, guys, I'm sorry. No, what did you do this time? I don't know if you heard, but Charlie Morton last night in Game 1 of the World Series took a Yuli Gurriel line drive off his right fibula. Whether or not that is the moment it fractured is up for debate, but regardless, his leg fractured during this game. Along with that tibia, he completed three more outs, including two strikeouts, went to the dugout, and for the rest of the evening, Charlie Morton told all of his teammates how sorry he was. He is reportedly just apologizing to them, and this is a regular thing. He is before, in an eight-inning performance where he gave up only one run, just sat in the dugout apologizing to his teammates for, you know, just... He performed on a broken leg for one batter, so I guess he's thinking, you know, I'm sorry I didn't decide to go for the next oh, 18 that we had left in the game. This is all my roundabout way of saying Charlie Morton, after the uh, Atlanta baseball teams win last night, is the guy that is making memories for me this week. So, uh, guys, I'm sorry. But they were the Cobb County baseball team. Are you apologizing for saying Atlanta? No, here's the thing. The good people of Atlanta do indeed enjoy the brave. Uh, the baseball team. I'm not even going to edit that one out. I'm going to leave that in. That's my shame. That's my mark of shame for forgetting this time. <laughs> um, real quick, do just want to point out that they can say, oh, it's approved by the roughly 18,000 Atlantic Cherokee Nation. Uh, two counterpoints to that. One, the displaced Cherokee Nation that lives in a reservation in Oklahoma numbers about 150,000 or so is not as cool with the Atlanta baseball team's iconography. And I'm making sure to mention those numbers because I don't think that I, as a very white person, uh, should necessarily try and override anyone's voices. I'm just trying to compare the relative number of voices of people that are relevant to that conversation. However, another thing to point out is if we're talking about nations in that particular part of the United States, well, that's a little bit less relevant to the founding of this franchise, which moved there from Milwaukee after being founded in Boston. The thing that you're but, not considering is that Boston is a very not racist city just historically in all contexts. So <laughs> it couldn't possibly have been racist intent. The reason that the Red Sox were the last team to have a black player is really because they just wanted to make sure everyone else got a chance to go first. It was it was a matter of deferring. Like everyone already knew that Boston was fine. It was beyond reproach. That's I mean, what listen, Bill Russell Bill, always said. Exactly. Exactly. Like Bill Russell just didn't go back to Boston for 30, 40 years after he retired because he just really wanted that that love. Like distance makes the heart grow fonder kind of thing. That's what Bill was going for. That's why he didn't go back to Boston. Well, this is this has all been my uh, protracted talk about immediate memories I'm having regarding the World Series, but I realize how rude I've been uh, as a co-host because I have not given the other two people in this space a moment to introduce themselves. I go ahead and cede the floor to you, gentlemen. I am uh, Austin Diaz. I am one of the other co-hosts, and I do think it's interesting that you went into that story about Charlie Morton breaking his fibula and immediately being apologetic because... I have two sporting experiences in which I've broken my fibula, one each. Xavier, of course, remembers our intramural black football team. And that was interesting because that was the first time I broke my fibula. And I have a tendency to fall back on the quote-unquote tough guy thing. So I was thinking, okay, let me stay down for a minute. I'll get up. I went up to put weight on it, and I just couldn't. I, like, fell right back over. And the second time that I broke my fibula... I was playing in our morning basketball game and I got tabletopped and I flipped. And this time I knew instantly that I broke it, but because I knew that I broke it, I knew how to walk on it and still be able to play. I did actually finish that game, not do very well. My defensive mobility was pretty limited, but I can connect with uh, Charlie Morton feeling apologetic afterwards. I did apologize to my team because the game to 12, we were up 11, nine when I broke the fibula, we lost 12, 11. Clearly, it was my fault, so... You, did, you did not have a Don Drysdale moment. You did not get to, in your injury, s- still overcome and lead the team to ultimate victory. I'm sorry, no, that's I, not Don Drysdale. Who's that? That is Kirk Gibson. Kirk I am Gibson. so sorry. Kirk Gibson. Again, you know what? That mistake, gonna leave it in. That's the only way I'll learn. Get better by making mistakes and improving. And, as always, joining us, our very special guest. Who we got today? 
I am the rotating, somewhat permanent guest host, Xavier. And unfortunately, I cannot relate to Charlie Morton or to Diaz, as I have not broken a fibula, and I avoid competing in team sports, so I don't have to worry about screwing over everyone else. To become a world-class tennis player, or golf, or... <laughs> Gymnastics, actually. Male gymnastics is very underrepresented. I feel like time is now. You got to strike while the iron's hot. Get, get me Crazy a pommel man. horse. I'll do it. I'll do it. I would love to see you get just super into dressage, uh, Xavier, if I could like really have my druthers about it. You know what? If I did that, I have plenty of time left to get really good at it. I talked about Andrew Hoy previously, the 62-year-old who competed at the Olympics. I have plenty of time ahead of me to get really into horses. so much time to get just wicked good at dressage. There's a bunch of horse farms here in Maryland. You know, that football team in Indianapolis, it's totally named after all of Maryland's horse farms. (laughs) The famous horse racing heritage of fucking Indianapolis. Anyway, Charlie Morton is clearly making memories for all of us. I do wonder if there is anyone else in particular making memories for either of you guys right now. For me... Again, I'm going to go back to negative memories because I'm never going to forget the, I pray to God, one season that Nick Sirianni is the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm not sure if either of you caught it, but in his press conference today, he made a wonderful metaphor about how sometimes the progress is not immediately visible and that the players are fertilizer. The players are fertilizer that are allowing the flower to bloom. Eventually, but you got to put the fertilizer down first. So, indirectly, but somewhat directly, called our players horseshit. It's it's just great to see a guy like Nick Sirianni, no head coaching credentials, come in after our Super Bowl winning coach gets like two seasons of a grace period and gets forced out, and now we have this fucking clown. So Nick Sirianni's making memories for me. I do want to give him one credit though. So. We're recording this episode on a Wednesday. This will be released on Sunday. So night before you all are listening to this, I will be at a Halloween party. And I'm actually going to dress up as Nick Sirianni. I'm going to have my Eagles visor on. I have like seven different highlighters in the side of my head. And I'm going to take my flask. I'm going to label it dumbass juice. And I'm going to drink from it all night because Nick Sirianni is a dumbass. And he's making memories for me for a moment i i want to think about the four eagles coaches that i can think of in our lifetime because andy reed like beloved by you all but also every single thanksgiving you know his head was being called for chip kelly who is just a fucking joke and and even doug peterson lovable guy but to the wider world is mostly going to be remembered for the taking headphones off meme and now you got this fucking dude and he came so close to saying a good thing there if he had just left off with the process. You all would have eaten that shit up. The one thing I will say for Nick Sirianni is he is an elite panderer, straight cut from the same cloth as Bryce Harper. He just knows things that we love to hear as Philadelphia fans. It was early enough, you know, we love those things. But what Nick didn't consider is that you can wear all the cute t-shirts that you want, but if you keep losing and you keep making the same mistakes, he didn't want to run the ball so bad that an entire stadium of people started chanting, run the ball. You ever heard that chant in your life? I mean, to be fair, I'm a Ravens fan. So no, we have never heard people clamoring for more running of the football. (laughs) That's fair. fair. Never an issue down in Baltimore. So Nick Sirianni making memories. I hope they're only one year and you do not get a second chance to keep making horseshit analogies, literally. Xavier, are, are you feeling positive or negative today? I'm feeling positive. I mean, how couldn't I be? You know, the only elite quarterback the Jets have had in 50 years is coming home. Oh, my god! Can't goodness. wait to see Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco, baby. <laughs> this is, I'm realizing that this is probably a podcast at this point that has the perfect cross-section of just diehard Joe Flacco fans. Baltimore Ravens fans who were at a uh, impressionable age for the Super Bowl 47 run. University of Delaware fans who were at an impressionable age during his uh, phenomenal time there. And now Jets fans who just need something, just literally anything. So now you got elite Joe Flacco. Is Brashad Perriman still on the roster? 
No Brashad Perriman, unfortunately. He'll have to make do with Jameson Crowder until we trade him. I, I wish Joe Flacco the best. Given what's happened to the last few Jets quarterbacks, this does make me concerned for his health. I'll just be frank about that. It's all right. He's, he's, he's going to be the backup. Robert Sala already said that they're, they're riding with Mike White. They just need to have a backup since Josh Johnson doesn't exist, I guess. Dude, what a year for Mike White. First White Lotus, and now he's going to be the starting uh, quarterback <laughs> for the New York Jets. Huge year for Mike White. I'm very happy for him. I'll also say, just on another note, I feel like we should mention, last night was the last international appearance for Carly Lloyd for the United States Women's National Team. Uh, the two-time FIFA Player of the Year, two-time World Cup champion, and two-time gold medalist, both times that she won a gold medal, she scored the gold medal winning goal. As a even casual soccer fan, I knew it was a big-ass deal when Carly Lloyd was retiring. So she will finish out her, her season in MLS with... N- NWSL. Uh, not MLS. Uh, NWSL, New York City, Gotham. A phenomenal career for Carly Lloyd. Just want to make sure that we all say that because the U.S. Women's National Team is one of the greatest dynasties in sporting history. 100%. Also, yeah. quick shout-out to the Knicks for beating the Sixers yesterday for the first time since yes, yes. a month after I got engaged. I have now been married for two and a half years. April 2017, last time that the Knicks had beaten had beaten the Sixers. And you better believe that Knicks fans are acting real stupid about it. I, I love it. I yeah. love this the video from outside MSG the first night so much. I hope you it's post so that every it's, single time love it. that the Knicks win all season. It is a perfect video. Spider-Man fucking like just off his ass on Hennessy. At AD, at don't the, you wish uh, you came to the Knicks? The Knicks. At, if, if you're listening and you're not sure what video we're talking about, it's at Side Talk NYC on Twitter. There's so many characters in that video. KD just starts cursing out Knicks. Tom Brady. That's fucking great. Love that. It, it's exactly what I would do. And we're all messed up. All Knicks fans were crazy. The best one was the guy that went, We had De Blasio. We had Cuomo. It sucked, but we got the Knicks. It's all fantastic. Well, those are our memories right now, and I'm glad that we could end with that, because, yeah, that video is a perfect memory right now that will be with us for a bit. But we want to talk about some more memories from the past. And Diaz, the, I guess, successful advocate for a Hall of Guy induction, I think your advocacy won out last week. So why don't you go ahead and take us away this week? Sure. So we had some back and forth about what exactly the theme was going to be this week. And what we settled on is guys who came in hot, went out just as quickly. My guy is perhaps not a perfect fit, but he fits closely enough. And I would be remiss if I did not take the opportunity to discuss on this podcast with you all, Chris Coast. Do you remember Chris Coast? Chris Coast? I don't believe that I do. I'm hoping that today we'll have some, like, head scratchers because you know we want this to be educational folks we don't want this to just be people that we all already love we want to fall in love too so diaz i'm ready to try and fall in love with chris coast chris coast you may remember him best as the author of the 33 year old rookie Chris coast was a catcher from fargo north dakota lost around the independent leagues for a while before we even got a chance to with a Major League Baseball franchise. So, 1996 to 1999, Chris Coast plays four seasons for his local Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks of the Independent Northern League. Those four years, this is after playing for D3 Concordia College. He was a three-time All-American there. Graduated to play for the local independent team for four years. And Chris Coast signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Did not even make it to the farm system, though. He was a spring training invite, and Chris Coast gets cut. Turns back to Fargo to play for the Red Hawks that season. And what season are we at now? This is 1999. Okay. So, like, we're we're conscious as human beings. Cool. Right. And at this point, Chris is 26 years old. So, 26 years old, still has not even participated in the minor leagues. After this 1999 season... Goes back home to Fargo. 2000, he comes back and he signs with the Cleveland baseball team. Quick interjection. Did you see that the the roller derby team is going through with a lawsuit against them? They They should. 
So yeah, there, there is a roller derby team called the Cleveland Guardians, and they have officially filed suit against the Cleveland baseball franchise regarding that name. Spiders is back in play, baby. Although the Cleveland cynic Spiders in me, was right there. Cleveland Spiders is right there. Look, you don't want to pay to have a good team on the field. Why don't you embrace the history of having truly terrible ones at this point? That's that's my message to Cleveland ownership. But sorry, the Cleveland baseball team, which was not even considering any of these name changes at that time, has him on their roster. Yes. So being an older prospect, went straight to AAA. And AAA is where he spends the majority of his uh, early aughts in the professional baseball world. So for 2000, he's with the Cleveland baseball team. 2003, he goes to the Boston Red Sox organization. 2004, he goes to the Brewers. And a lot of AA, AAA ball, never really getting that close to his opportunity. He's kind of one of those borrow a football term sometimes guys are referred to as just training camp bodies you just need bodies to get through drills for people yeah to a practice, practice squad guy exactly chris coast is basically a warm body that can catch pitches from pitchers keep it going from that perspective so after 2004 with the brewers he then signs with the phillies in 2005 spends the whole 2005 season with the AAA affiliate the red barons scranton wilkes-barre red barons coming into 2006 at this point this is where he is 33 years old he is the author of the 33 year old rookie i think we can see where i'm going with this (laughs) foreshadowing chris coast i can remember from following spring training that year he was one of those guys that nobody was talking about going into spring training and by the time we were about two to three weeks into it every single beat writer was like no, I didn't even know who this guy was before we entered camp. Chris Coast is fucking dominating right now. He may just be playing himself into a roster spot. Sure enough, 2006, the opening day roster comes out. Chris Coast has earned his spot as the backup catcher for the Phillies. So at 33 years old, oh, yeah. Congratulations, this point, Chris Coast. it's been a decade. So starting in 96, he's playing for an independent team back in hometown Fargo. Four years there. Five more years bouncing around double-A, triple-A ball, riding the bus, being paid shit wages, all those things that we know about the minor leagues. Strength of his dream carries him on. Finally, in 2006, Chris Coast makes the team. And it's not just a, a sympathy spot where he was up for a week or two, then a guy got healthy, and then he goes back down. No, Chris Coast stays with the Phillies for this entire 2006 season. And Chris Coast... He's been waiting a while. He's not here to fuck around. He's here to play some baseball. I just want to go through his slash line that year. Because for a 33-year-old rookie, it's truly astounding. 328 batting average, a 376 OBP, and a 505 slugging for an 881 OPS, which is certainly not MVP Good, level. though. That's, that'll make the All-Star game most years. You would think. He only played 65 games because, again, he was the backup catcher. But in those opportunities, he certainly made the most of them. And I don't think it's any coincidence that with Chris Coast now in the fold, the Phillies start to ascend. 2006, of course, the Phillies don't make the playoffs. I believe it was, I want to say that was the Billy Wagner year. We signed Billy Wagner, elite closer. Sure enough, he gave up a back-breaking home run to the Astros in a game. We were in the wildcard hunt with them. And I will never forget the late, great Harry Callis. He's the most defeated I've ever heard him in life. A long drive, deep left field. You have got to be kidding me. And even call the home run. But anyway, we're not we're not reflecting on that. We're reflecting on the, the beautiful ascension of Chris Coast. So 2007 comes along. Chris Coast is not just the backup catcher. He's also our preferred right-handed bat off the bench. He's the first right-handed okay. bat off the bench. So this is a significant role in a National League team. 2007, the Phillies end up making the playoffs swept out by the Rockies who ended up sweeping their way all the way to the World Series until they got swept by the Red Sox that year. Played the fewest number of possible games. Exactly. It's it's like a pitcher facing the minimum. It's still notable. So now we come to 2008. He is a veteran of baseball, still somewhat new to the major leagues. But in 2008, Chris Coast plays the most games he ever played in the season. He plays 98. Okay, so is he... I mean... It's the majority of the games. Are those uh, games started or is that all appearances? It's all appearances. Okay. So he had 305 plate appearances, though. So roughly... A solid amount. 
in, in combination, so that was Carlos Ruiz was really starting to come into his own at this point. My all-time favorite hombre. Love Chooch. By the way, fun fact, now that we're talking about Chooch, for those who don't know where Chooch's nickname came from, in spring training, whenever he would make a mistake, he would yell, Chucha, Chucha. And Chucha in his native Panama is the word for fuck, an exasperated fuck. So he would always yell Chucha. His teammates shortened that to Chooch. Of course, Philly fans caught on, and once we learned that that was the actual origin of it, of course we're going to chant it as many that's, times. That's as not going to dissuade <laughs> any Philadelphia fan from using that name whatsoever. Exactly. So it's it is funny though because when when he's asked to tell the story of his nickname, oh, you know, they told me I had to scooch over a little bit to frame the pitch, so uh, I said chooch. That's that's hey, why you they got a lie. You can't say that that's why that's the nickname. No, you should uh, I'm glad say that the news it. That would just out. make that would make Philly fans even happier. We, we hadn't seen that level of pandering yet that people like Bryce Harper would perfect later on. Right. It was, I mean, the internet still wasn't super popular at the time. I totally get it. Anyway, 2008 makes his most played appearances. Of course, this is the year that the Phillies went to the World Series and beat the Tampa Bay Rays four games to one. Of course, that famous game five where he got six innings in and then it was a rain delay and then we had to wait the next day. And then the night after they finally resumed it. Chris Coast started game one of that World Series because, of Hell course, yeah. the first two games were in Tampa. So Chris Coast going against a left-handed pitcher as the preferred right-handed bat off the bench. Bat eighth, one spot ahead of Chooch, Carlos Ruiz. He'd go 0 for 4. No strikeouts. But those, those were his only plate appearances of that World Series. But he did make it. He hangs around one more year. Goes to the Starts with the Phillies. Ends up with the Houston Astros, plays a combined 88 games that year, but at the age of 36, 33 to 36, just as quickly as he came in, he goes out. This coast is now done with professional baseball. He did have an opportunity later. He was signed with the Mets. The Mets caught him. The Nationals signed him. He needed Tommy John. He said, hey, I'm 37 years old. Am I really, am I, am I really going to try to make this comeback? So that was it for Chris Coast. But going to come full circle now. So Chris Coast, as I mentioned, a Fargo, North Dakota native, his professional baseball start with those Fargo Moorhead Redhawks. After he retires from baseball, he spends some time doing commentary for the Phillies post game. But one thing to sit with a headset on your head and talk about sports. It's another thing to be back involved with them. In 2017, he's named the hitting coach those very same Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks. In the middle of the pandemic season, he's named the interim manager. And effective at the start of this season, April 20th, 2021, he was named permanent manager of the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks. Fantastic. Chris Coast, back in his hometown, back in North Dakota. He's got that North Dakota State football bison I did not realize that you guys had two North Dakota athletes, like famously North Dakota athletes that were so central to two championships of your city recently. They are. They are. That, that, that is a very unique connection. But, you know, the difference is Chris Coast did get to play in the championship. Carson Wentz, <laughs> ACL. And Sorry. Chris Coast also, based on your opinion, seems <clears throat> to, to be a little bit more highly regarded in that even if no one has a personal feeling about him, it's not negative. The other thing right. that's interesting Funny to have the last name Coast and be from pretty much the most middle of the continent place that you could possibly be. Well, you've never seen that those is, that really is nice Fargo coastlines. Beautiful. It's not even got, one of the big lake states. Got an oceanfront property in Fargo to sell you. Get, give it 30 years. But I should also mention, so before he was the head coach of Fargo, he was even the head coach at Concordia where he played his college ball. So Coast Coast just really coming back full circle. That's that's really cool to see someone that clearly was just going to be involved with that sport forever. Even if that breakthrough never happened, based on the fact that it's been the only thing he's done since then, too. And that's fine. You find your passion, fucking run it into the ground as long as you can. But it's, it is great that in the middle of all that, he did at least have it come to fruition for a little bit. I love that. Right. And if you're interested in more about Chris Coast, I would really encourage you to read The 33-Year-Old Rookie. Not just about his season coming up with the Phillies, but of course, all the trials and tribulations of going through yeah. the independent circuit and the minor league circuit, 
he actually had a book before that that he wrote as well when he was still just a minor league guy, which was published in 1997. Hey, I'm Just the Catcher is the name of that book. No longer in print because the 33-year-old rookie ended up being a little more popular. So book deal decided to go all in on printing that. But again, the 33-year-old rookie by Chris Coast, Coast spelled C-O-S-T-E, Chris spelled C-H-R-I-S. It's an easy read. It's an enjoyable one. Give you the behind the scenes of the baseball lifer, as you will. But for coming in so quickly, helping us to a championship, and then riding off back into that Fargo, North Dakota sunset. I mean, 33, like you were saying this and a guy that came to mind was uh, Caleb Joseph, who was part of that 2014 Orioles team. And, you know, he was someone that had toiled away in the minors for years. He's the record for most games with the Bowie Bay Sox, the double A affiliate for the O's. No way. And he, he set that record the year that he was called up. He's like, if I don't get called up this year, I have now played more with this minor league franchise than anything else. I was thinking he's got to be, he's only 35 now. Even after all that, he broke into the league at 28. That's pretty old, but I was so certain that he was going to be on that same timeline as Coast. Like, 33 is absolutely nuts. Feels like this happens more often with baseball because of the larger rosters you know, and the dedicated minor league system that is more in-depth than any other sport. You know, you have guys like Shane Spencer. Comes up for one September, hits 10 home runs and three grand slams. Helps lead the Yankees to a championship. Luke Voigt came out of nowhere two years ago. What was he, like a 40th round draft pick? He was drafted as a favor by the Cardinals because he was a St. Louis boy uh, born and bred. That's that's the reason that Mike Piazza got drafted. He was the last pick in the draft because the Dodgers guys like owed his dad. And so they just took him. And I am glad that baseball has that ecosystem. I mean, that that's a moment for us to make a pitch. Hey, if you are not tapped in to the growing movement of minor league players coalition. Uh, there's a lot of resources online for how you can help contribute to that. It does look like, it looks like baseball can't be as ruthlessly dickish to them as they have been in the past. I think yeah. They have it's to it's them next year, which is good. There is an element to which it is sad about how much of an improvement that is, but it is an immense improvement. So that's, that's great. God bless minor league baseball. Wilmington blue rocks, baby. Wilmington Blue Rocks, Mr. Celery coming out after every home run. I know a guy who owns that team. Wait, you know the, the Blue Wait, Rocks? What? Owner? Yeah, I, I know I know one of their owners. They, they, of it's more than more than one. My old uh, sports law professor, Ken Jacobson, got me a sports law scholarship and got me into that uh, banquet where I met Malcolm Jenkins. I think he's about to get us into some Blue Rocks games this next season, Xavier. I want to go to some minor league baseball. Please, one other yes. name I just want to drop while we're talking about Players riding through the minor leagues, making their late debut. It did just remind me of, you guys remember Andre Ingram? So Andre Ingram basically is an NBA G League slash D League lifer. He was with the Lakers uh, G League affiliate. And at the end of 2018, that was one of those just horrible Lakers seasons. I think it was the year after Kobe retired. So they were still really shitty and they didn't even have the Kobe nostalgia to lean into. So for the last two games of the season, they signed Andre Ingram up to the big league team. And he dropped like, I don't think he quite got the 20, but he dropped like 19 in his first game in the NBA. And that was at the age of 32. So while we were on that somewhat subject, Andre Ingram, I wanted to give him a shout out real quick. Because I just remember that because it was just awesome seeing the Lakers bench, which was all those young guys just like losing their shit with every Andre Ingram bucket. So, <laughs> shout out Andre Ingram. Xavier, you got a got a guy for us? I got a guy, but um, real quick, I want to shout out someone who is the most came out of nowhere, burned brightly, faded quickly guy that I can remember in recent history, but is too, it was too influential to be a guy. That's Jeremy Lin. And I want to shout out Lin Sanity and what that did for That's me. That's true. Yes, for two months. Because that was fantastic. I'll never forget his game winner uh, in the Air Canada Center against the Raptors with a Band-Aid hanging from his chin after having his chin split open. One of the best moments of my sporting fandom, but I can't call Jeremy Lin a guy because he, he, he was too important to New York, even if it was just for two months. Little Insanity <clears throat> is, is a cultural moment. You can... T- say that and that's not a Knicks fan just thinking that the Knicks are the center of the universe. Like, Linsanity was a cult. <laughs> it was huge. 
still go back to the highlights of their game on ESPN against the Lakers. He had, so, Jeremy Lin, that wasn't the game he made his debut. He came on sometime earlier. He already had a couple signature performances leading up to that, but that was the first time that it was national TV. Kobe said some slightly dickish thing about him in a press conference where they asked him about it. He's like, how do I care about Jeremy Lin? I've got five rings, like that kind of thing. Jeremy Lin fucking like cooked him. I think he had like 37 in that game. Well, okay. If Jeremy, he's not Jeremy your guy, Lin aside. Yeah, he's not so, your guy. So who's your guy? My guy. Do you remember Chris Matthews? MSNBC pundit? No, but that that he was, <laughs> Play nicknamed, hardball. Hard, was nicknamed Hardball by Daryl Bevel. <laughs> you start to get into him, I feel like it's going to come back. So this Chris Matthews was born October 6th, 1989 in Long Beach, California. He played tight end and defensive end at Susan Miller Dorsey High School in Crenshaw over in L.A. One of uh, many illustrious alumni from that school, including Deshaun Johnson, Hugh Jackson, Chili Davis, future number one overall pick, Kayvon Thibodeau, and Robert Kardashian. Ah! (laughs) Oh, Robbie. Chris Matthews was supposed to go to UCLA, uh, along with a couple of his high school teammates, but was academically ineligible and had to go the JUCO route. He starred in JUCO, sophomore season, caught 80 passes for uh, 1,200 yards and 11 TDs in just nine games, and ended up transferring to Kentucky, where he played second fiddle to Kentucky's greatest ever uh, modern receiver. Diaz, do you know who that is? Still in the NFL today. Oh, who is it? It's Randall Cobb. He was the second fiddle to oh, Randall Cobb. Randall Cobb! Oh. The small, so many terrible corn on the cob fantasy team names. <laughs> well, imagine the guy that drafted Kevin Cobb and Randall Cobb to their same team. Oh that, my god, some, someone some definitely did there. that. Yeah, there's no way that some singular person didn't do that. I hate that theoretical <laughs> person for that. Fuck you know that what theory. that person is? They're corny. Nope, <laughs> no, not, not even acknowledging that. <laughs> Moving on. So... Playing with Randall Cobb, Chris Matthews, senior season, caught 61 passes, 925 yards, and nine TDs, which the the number two uh, wide receiver, that's, no, that's not bad. You know, he did go undrafted in 2011. He signed as a UDFA with the Browns, uh, was cut after the end of training camp. He ended up playing for the Iowa Barnstormers in the AFL in 2012. The same team that Kurt Warner played for, is it not? Yes, it is. Although there have been like seven iterations of the Barnstormers in eight different leagues sure. at this point, but they still oh retain the same history. So Kurt Warner is the only retired number for that for that team. Uh, he it. actually played for two separate football leagues in 2012. He played with the Barnstormers in the spring of 2012, and then he went up north, and he played with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I love CFL. He won the CFL's Most Outstanding Rookie Award, got 81 passes for 1,200 yards and seven TDs. Love that. And and but, what uh, season is this? This is fall of 2012. So spring of 2012, he's okay. played in okay. the AFL. Fall of 2012, he's in the CFL. You know what? When you're trying Dude. to make your way, you kind of have to do what you got to do. You know, football's a fickle sport. As we all know, things come and go quickly. His second season in the CFL, got a really bad case of turf toe, missed almost the whole season, and was cut. So within a year after winning Most Outstanding Rookie, he's out of a job. So, uh... Mr. Matthews is now back at home in Cali, and he's working two jobs to get by. He's working at a Foot Locker, and he's working as a private security guard. So one day, he's at his job as a security guard, and he gets a phone call. And it's an official from the Seahawks asking him to come for a tryout. And he told them, I don't get off work until 9 p.m. I don't know if I'll make it. And they said, okay. <laughs> and then a couple minutes later, his agent called him and said, what the hell are you doing? Go get packed and get your ass on a plane. So he left work, jumped on a plane, and made it to the tryout in time. At this tryout, he impressed enough that they signed him to a reserve future contract, and he went to training camp with the Seahawks, played uh, all four games in the preseason. He got cut at the end of preseason, but was signed to the uh, practice squad, so he, he stuck around. He... Made his NFL debut after being activated to the the full roster in December 6th of 2014, age 25, and played three games, 
made one special teams tackle, but that's it. No offensive stats, no no, no snaps as a wide receiver. But he, he got in there. He, he On the board, got one tackle. So then his big break comes in the 2014 NFC Championship game. Seahawks down 19-14 uh, with two minutes left, one timeout, go for an onside kick. I remember this play very vividly. The ball is going towards Jordy Nelson. Brandon Bostic thinks that it's going towards him, forgets his blocking assignment, which was Chris Matthews. I just realized, is Randall Cobb on this Packers team at this point? I believe, yes, Randall Cobb is on this Packers team. I'm so glad that these two are now, this just got all the much better for me. So Brandon Bostic misses his blocking assignment. And instead of blocking Chris Matthews, goes to try to catch this ball, getting in the way of Jordy Nelson. Completely fumbles trying to get this. And who gets on the ball? Chris Matthews. Chris Matthews, a man who so far has one counting stat of a special teams tackle in his NFL career, recovers this onside kick. That leads to the Seahawks taking the lead. Game goes to overtime. Seahawks win. Go to the Super Bowl. After the NFC Championship game, they're asked about him because everyone's like, who the hell is Chris Matthews? Who is this guy? And that's where Daryl Bevel is interviewed, says that he's going to be a great wide receiver one day, and that they call him Hardball because of Chris Matthews of MSNBC. That's an unfortunate and... <laughs> person to be tied to. <laughs> also, you know, I, I like to think it's also partially for his incredibly hardworking work ethic because this is already so many trials and tribulations just to get to this point. Two full football seasons in a year. That's, this guy is a beast. This guy's fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, you can never knock his hustle. He ends up playing a starring role in the Super Bowl 49, the most watched program in American television history, where he had four catches for 109 yards and a touchdown, tied with Julian Edelman for most receiving yards in that game. Had a very good chance of being the MVP of said game until the Malcolm Butler happened. That is still, I get so angry every time I think about that. It was second and goal from the one. There's 20 seconds left. You have Marshawn Lynch, and you even have a timeout. You at least hand it to him once. If you get stuffed, you call the timeout. Then I get doing your cute little passing play. I'm more upset about the run that Kyle Shanahan doesn't call in 51 for the Falcons. They've given up a touchdown or two. I think this is when it's maybe 28 to 11. Matt Ryan gets sacked, and then there's a false start, and they're all of a sudden out of field goal range. If you haven't seen the Dorktown series, uh, The History of the Atlanta Falcons, its final part is just entirely Super Bowl 51. It's absolutely incredible. But that there are two such rushing plays that have gifted Super Bowls to the New England Patriots is uh, frustrating. And the Patriots don't need the help, but they keep getting it. So, unfortunately, what should have been his breakout game ended in defeat, and... Like many who came before him, let's say David Tyree, Mario Manningham, two players who are only known for Super Bowl catches. Unfortunately, those guys won. Chris Matthews didn't. No, he didn't really do anything else after that. Daryl Bevel's predictions of him becoming a great wide receiver didn't come to fruition. Within a year, the Seahawks had cut him. He ended up signing with James, do you know? Baltimore Ravens. Chris Matthews signs with the Baltimore Ravens. Yeah, it sounds like a wide receiver that we'd have on our team. Throw some guys out there. Remember when Kamar Aiken was the leading receiver for the Ravens? If you say yes, you're a liar, but that was someone that led us in receiving yards one year. (laughs) Only because I am hopelessly obsessed with fantasy football. Chris Matthews catches his one and only regular season touchdown while playing for the Ravens. He caught this at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Hold on, what season was this? What season? This is the season where Joe Flacco gets injured. I can tell you who the quarterback that threw that touchdown pass is if it's the one in Baltimore. It'll be a great guy. Because at the end of the season, December 27th is when that game was. Yeah. It was Ryan Mallett. It was, yeah. We go 5 11 that season, but you know what? That 5 11 record doesn't matter. What does matter is a 2 0 record against the Steelers that season, baby. So Ryan Mallett to the Chris Matthews connection downs the Steelers. I, the other touchdown um, was uh, Buck Allen. You mean Javorius? Oh, Javorius, <laughs> Javorius Buck Allen? Yes. 
it was a little rough being a Ravens fan before Lamar Jackson. I'm not going to lie. There were some years there where, uh, other than Justin Tucker, there was not a lot. <laughs> other than that one Hall of Famer. Hey, yes, he's the greatest kicker alive, and special teamers are, are incredibly important. Hey, we still dearly love you, Matariza, if you have to hear this. on the pod, God. Matariza, please, your presence is the one thing that could legitimize this as a podcast. Right now, we are just three dudes talking about guys, but if you come on here, we become a legitimate journalistic enterprise. It would give us no greater pleasure than to be able to say that we got the first exclusive interview with Matt Ariza before you go on to inevitably join the NFL as the first player to make it as both a punter and a kicker. We all know what's coming, but before you get there, before you become too big time for us, please come on the pod. I do have to say, because I follow Matt Ariza now and get a lot of information about the 7-0 and now 21-ranked San Diego State University Aztecs. Uh, he has gotten some interviews this week. I remember telling you we were super ahead of the curve. We were maybe... One week ahead of the curve on this, but <laughs> Matt Ariza, we do love you. Okay, so Chris Matthews has just beaten the killer bees in Baltimore. This is great. I love that that we've found a way to work that miserable season in. <laughs> but uh, things don't really work out that well for Chris Matthews. That's his only his only touchdown catch. He misses all the 2016 season on injured reserve. Played couple games for the Ravens in 2017 only had three catches and then he's out of the league he went back to Canada played with the Calgary Stampeders did win the Grey Cup in 2018 but didn't stay there long went to Winnipeg again in 2019 and then played a couple games with the uh, Montreal Alouettes but since 2019 he's you know been quietly retired from football doing his own thing again I mean, he was with, uh, like, I could tell you, I don't know how much you all follow CFL. Those are some of the blue bloods. Like, Montreal Alouettes, they've been a little bit down this last day, but they dominated the 2000s. See, I followed Henry Burris while he was there, and so Ottawa Red Blacks. Just watching Henry Burris be great, because Henry Burris is great. But other than that, haven't watched too much CFL. Well, the, the Montreal Alouettes, they are the modern incarnation of the Baltimore Stallions that existed for two years, made it to back-to-back Grey Cups, won, and then did move to Montreal because we got the Ravens. It's such a fun tidbit to remember that for a very brief period of time, the best Canadian football team was, in fact, Baltimore. They didn't have a name the first season. They were the Baltimore CFLers for, like, a while. It took them they a while. They were ahead of the eventually. curve. Washington has stolen it from them now. I'm very pro keep it as football team. I just want that to be known. Keep it the Washington the football team. It looks so good. The helmets look so good. I love the Washington football team. I don't love the Washington football team. I love that iconography. Uh, <laughs> Two last quick pieces of trivia yes. before we move on from Chris Matthews. One, Reggie White is his cousin. Love that. And two, Ooh. during Super Bowl 49, the value of his rookie card jumped up 3,500%. My God, if you cashed in on that, kudos to you. The, the, the one person that cashed in on that Chris Matthews rookie card doing that Super Bowl, I hope you spent that money well, man. Beautiful. I have to admit, uh, my, mine, I, I think, is going to be one of those ones. Might get a little bit of blanks there. But let's, let's go ahead and see if you guys uh, remember Hillary Lunky. Anyone? Hillary Lunky is a former member of the LPGA Tour. Now, I do not care for golf all that much. I'll be frank about that. Uh, but when I was growing up, a couple kids down the street, Jimmy and Katie Koch, their dad, loved golf. And so very often, if we wanted to be around the television on a weekend at the Koch household, we had to watch some golf. And I do actually remember in 2003 what I'm about to tell you. The, the meteoric rise and then... It, I, it's, it, to call it a descent, it is a blip. It is like a single blip in an EKG meter, what we were about to go through with Hillary Lunky. Hillary Lunky is born, Hillary Hameyer. She's born in Edina, Minnesota, June 7th, 1979. And her dad, Bill, is who got her into golfing, Bill Hameyer. Uh, he had played at University of Minnesota. It was pretty good, but he did, you know, after college go to just becoming an insurance salesman didn't really hold on with it and the thought was as hillary went to college at stanford uh, and was a four-time all-american 
still, even with that, they were very realistic in this being a great collegiate uh, athletic career. Uh, she She's a very good collegiate golfer. She is part of the Curtis Cup. The Curtis Cup is pretty much a female analog of the Ryder Cup, except that it has not expanded to the larger scope of Europe the way that the Ryder Cup has for men. Uh, it is still just U.S. versus Britain and Ireland. She does participate in the 2000 team. She goes with a couple of Americans. They win on like 10 to 8 aggregate points. It's, you know, again... I don't follow golf all that much. It's a little confusing me. What I do know is she didn't lose a single match that she was in that whole time. She ties one, but she doesn't, doesn't lose. And she's 21. This is a good young player. They got a good mix of vets that are in their 30s, even 50s, uh, and then younger players in their 20s. Her and someone named Angela Stanford, who is not with her at Stanford. She's going to TCU, but she is another very big up-and-coming collegiate golfer. She's the main golfer that people expect from this graduating class to go pro. But because Hillary Hommeyer had played well enough, she, she qualified for this way to get into the uh, LPGA and into some of their competitions just through going to one of the qualifying schools locally near Stanford. So she uh, is in still the Northwest. She's going to be the further Northwest, still living out of Stanford. She's living there at this point with Tyler Lunky. Tyler, who is also a Stanford golfer. So they are up there. He caddies for her on the weekends. You know, she plays at this qualifying school. She's pretty good compared to the other people there. She does, through a regional and sectional event, qualify for the 2002 LPGA Tour with a big golf tournament that is coming up that month. And that is the U.S. Women's Open. It's going to be in Pumpkin Ridge, Oregon, just a couple of years before this in Pumpkin Ridge, Oregon, another Stanford student at the time had a very big moment. Tiger Woods became the first ever person to get three straight amateur titles when he won in 96 at Pumpkin Ridge, which is just so fucking great to say every time. Pumpkin My Ridge, boy, Oregon. Eldrick, Eldrick I, you, you'd Here think you that Tiger is about as good as like a nickname could be. And you learn that his name is Eldrick. It's like, honestly... Maybe you should have stuck with that because that's also pretty fucking badass. I, don't, I go the opposite way. If I came of age, I, if I became sentient, I realized that my <laughs> parents had called me Eldrick. I'd be desperately clinging to any other name possible. I'd be like, all right, what's my middle name? Can we do an initial thing? What's my favorite animal? Tiger. Uh, yeah, just call me fucking Tiger. Eldrick. Tiger, all right, Diaz, you, Diaz on record is not in favor of the name Eldrick. I, Eldrick I, is canceled. <laughs> okay, Eldrick is canceled. You heard it here first, folks. And now, it, Diaz, do you want to comment on the fact that you've just decided to cancel Tiger Woods? I did not cancel Tiger Woods. I agreed with Tiger Woods that the name Eldrick should be canceled because it sounds dorky as shit. If your name is Eldrick and you're listening <laughs> to this podcast, I'm sorry, but you should look into the legal process. We have a lawyer on this podcast. Xavier can maybe help you. Can at least refer you to somebody. You need to change your name from Eldrick. Follow Tiger's lead, reject Eldrick, embrace anything else. But yeah, Tiger Woods had a big moment. This this is still a relatively new golf course at this point. So that was like the first seminal moment to happen here. This course was actually in 1992, ranked by Golf Digest. It's got two courses. It has Witch Hollow and Ghost Creek. Those are the two names of the courses here. It's Ghost Creek ranked. I hate it. It's so fucking stupid. Again, largely. It. Golf is a very silly sport, and particularly as I live in a city where, like, a lot of land in areas that could probably use public parks is used up by golf courses, it's frustrating. I will say, hey, at the very least, Ghost Creek was named the number one public golf course by Golf Digest in 1992, and Witch Hollow was ranked the number two private golf course. For what it's worth, that was behind Atlantic Golf Club in Bridgehampton, New York. I hated one, saying the name of that town. One was public and one was private. It's yeah, they have, the they have two club. courses at this place, yes. But the competitive one, the one that they have the Women's Open at this year, 2003 now, that she's qualified for the tour. Got it. Got uh, it's it. a par 71 course. She's someone that qualified for this season. But there's, there's a lot of very good lady golfers here uh, coming into the 2003 Women's Open. Some highlights. There is 
uh, Annika Sornstam nearly three-peated once before. She had repeated once and lost by like two strokes the third straight year. So she's trying to come back. There's Julie Inkster, who is the defending champion. She'd won two of the last four coming into this competition. They're a little bit on the older side. There are also some younger people coming up. Uh, Michelle Wee is a 13-year-old that had qualified for this. She was at the time the youngest ever qualifier for this competition and was like smashing a bunch of age records. If you were looking at her. Uh, also, just coming off of a pretty a pretty good finish at her first major is Angela Stanford. So we've got a lot of players, and one that pretty much no one is paying attention to necessarily is our, our good friend Hillary Lunky. But after one round, and, and this was their four straight days after the first two, they cut it to the smaller fields. Her first one, she shoots 71, exactly par. For some reason, this being a relatively new course, it gave a lot of people some trouble. And with par, she's towards the top of the leaderboard. No one's necessarily thinking all that much of it. Then it's the first day. Some people have, you know, the game of their life. But that par ended up being the second worst game that she would shoot over the next five days. I was just going to say, I believe it's the same concept with the women's tour, with the LPGA, as it is with the PGA. The U.S. Open is almost always a very difficult course like my one or two under for the entire tournament usually puts you in the running for for a yeah. u.s open so she felt good coming into it because it was so, this one was one that played to her strengths she was a very good putter coming into this the thing that she hung her hat on hillary Lunky, was her putting she also uh was very candid in describing kind of the shortcomings of her swing she's like i leave it short a lot when i miss a swing but what i don't do is i don't hook or slice if i miss a shot it's just going to come up short and this was a very straight course where you did have to get a good drive but if she got enough good drives she could get something going and so that first day she shoots 71 that next day she shoots 69 nice for two under par bring her to minus two and she is now once again up there at the top of the leaderboards it's two days now people are taking notice next day third day and again same course every day her third time now on this course she goes minus three, 68 on the day. She is now minus five overall. She is the leader. No one had ever gotten into the tournament through the sectional and regional qualifying route and won, ever. There are some of some titans of the sport out here right now, and this name out of nowhere is just wrecking them coming today. And everyone's like, okay, this is a beautiful story. She's how long can it last? Off. Who's how long? How long can it last? And and I mean, Anika Sorenstam's still right there. She is at minus three coming into this last day. Angela Stanford is still under par, so she's still around. It is not going to be a walk in the park by any means. And it is actually now on the fourth day, the potential final round, that Hillary Lunky unfortunately does have her worst run of the entire course. She's doing pretty well in the front nine, but she has had the first meltdown of the whole course at this point. She does have in four holes, three bogeys at one point. It's still two under. She is still in the lead, but Angela Stanford is catched up. Angela Stanford has a phenomenal front. And Angela Stanford continues to have a very good back nine with uh, another player also coming out of it. Kelly Robbins, who's a veteran that I believe her uh, career total is nine. Uh, Sorensum has fallen off. It, it is these three now coming into the final holes. It is Hillary Lunky, Angela Stanford, and Kelly Robbins. Kelly Robbins and Angela Stanford both birdie on the final hole. And if Hillary Lunky, who gets onto the green for her par shot, does not shoot par, those two are going to go to a playoff and she will not be included. She does make par. And now they will play through this course for a fifth time in five days the next morning. And this is before they had shorter three-hole playoff rounds. They are going to play an 18-hole playoff round tomorrow. I, I, I like that better than the three-hole. I, I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree at all. Example. I just think I think this is credible. I, her and Angela Stanford were roommates on this Curtis Cup team, and now here they are, uh, along with Kelly Robbins, about to about to force this. Hillary Lunky still being caddied by her husband Tyler. Since we were mentioning silly white person spellings of names earlier with Chris Coase, Tyler is spelled T Y L A R. They seem like an too. absolutely they seem that. like an absolutely lovely family. They seem like great people. I've read a number of articles about them. They have a beautiful family, but that is silly. Anyway, Tyler and Hillary take that course the final day. Get off to a 
okay start through nine holes. Hillary Lunky is at one under. Stanford is three over. And Robbins is at one over. Kelly Robbins has her backbreaking moment. She has a double bogey on 13. And that pretty much eliminates Kelly Robbins. So Robbins is knocked out by that double bogey. Stanford, from 11 to 14, three out of four of those holes are birdies. Stanford comes roaring back all of a sudden. Lunky's slow and steady, though. Never too high, never too low. She has 12 out of her 18 holes, one putted on the green for at least par or birdie. Stanford bogeys 17, but birdies 18. Stanford is now exactly at par, 71. Lunky gets it on the green with a chance for a birdie shot. It's about a 15-foot putt. This is exactly the situation that Hillary Lunky would want to be in. And absolutely nothing goes wrong. She wins the Women's Open. She gets $560,000, which is immense. She had a day, a commemorative day for her, declared by the Minneapolis governor at the time, Paul Lenti. This was hard to find when the day was. I had to search it and find an old archived city council release. The webpage is no longer active, so I had to go to the Wayback Machine to view an archived view of this webpage. Anyway, it was July 15th, 2003. Uh, Hillary (laughs) Lunkey does have... It's it's incredible. Um, You know, she, in five days, plays the course five times, and just like you said, Diaz, I mean, she's only two under the whole time. It's a 283 total score, but it is, it, it's enough. All you need to do is be one better than the next person. And she is one better. And it is the best finish by far that she will ever have in her career. Uh, now here's the cool thing. It does immediately get her a five-year exemption in the LPGA. And she's like, awesome. I have a five-year career minimum in the LPGA. And just as she said, when she came in 2002, when we get to that point, we'll see what happens. There are five main competitions that that they kind of talk about in the LPGA Tour in total. Her next highest finish ever was a tie for 37th at one of them. Several of them, she never made it past the, the largest fields cut. You would think, like, maybe this is kind of a bummer. But what I love the most about Hillary Lunke, uh, as, as I learned about her, is that following this, she absolutely takes this massive leadership role in the LPGA. She is on the executive committee by 2006. She's the vice president of the LPGA's executive committee by 2007. She's the president in 2008. She's like a very highly regarded member of the community. Uh, Everyone in golfing reports to love her. Uh, And the best part about her five-year exemption was the Opens are planned ahead of time quite well. She's guaranteed to play through 2008. And in 2008, the U.S. Women's Open is held in her hometown of Adena, Minnesota. It is the last major that she ever plays in. By this time in November of 2007, she had the first of three daughters. Uh, she had Greta by that point. They also have her and Tyler, uh, Marin and Linnea. It's a lovely family of five. Uh, she plays this last Women's Open in Adena, Minnesota. And at that point, she's like, I, I need to move on to the family. The family's a full-time job. And it absolutely is. Anyone that, you know, is someone that spends all of their time raising children. You know, I worked in childcare. Even just spending that much time with kids is a full-time job. So all the respect to her for, you know, recognizing when she wanted to step away. Uh, In 2008, that same year, she also gets awarded the William and Mousy Powell Award. It's basically the award awarded by the LPGA to just the person that embodies the ideals and principles of the LPGA the most. Angela Stanford goes on to have a a pretty solid career. She has several open wins as well. Like I said, Kelly Robbins finished with nine. Sorenstam absolutely continues to wreck for a couple of years, as does Julie Inkster. Even Michelle Wee eventually gets a open one. Like all of those other golfers had great careers, but everyone from this moment on really, it is great to see how much everyone loved Hillary Lunke in terms of the leadership that she provided. Uh, something a lot of people cited was her bringing back this mentorship program called Big Sister, which had just veteran golfers helping like young rookie golfers adjust to what life as a professional athlete was. And again, all of this was because she got that five-year exemption from this one greatest five-day stretch of golf in her life. Otherwise, she would have been a one-and-done in 2002, probably. And because of that, she was able to help p- provide all of this to um, women's sports. And I just think it's great that it was capitalized on in such a good way, this moment. You know, we talk about people who have a meteoric rise and then burn out. And, and a lot of time, it's like, oh, man. Wish more could have been done with that time. Hillary Lunky does not waste a, 
fucking second of her time. God damn it. Hillary Lunke is an efficient motherfucker. And, and I love her for it. And so that, my friends, is my guy, Hillary Lunke, this week. That's pretty good. I, I, there's a lot of really good, like, golf factoids and trivia and pieces like that that I, I enjoy. Like, you ever heard of Lee Jong-un 6? Uh, there's five others that were also on the tour, right? So she won the, uh, the 2019 U.S. Women's Open. But she's Korean, started off her career on the uh, Korean LPGA Tour. There were already five other Lee Jong-uns. So she is <laughs> Lee Jong-un 6 for like all official things just Pressure. after after the lee there is just a six the number six attached to lee jong lee six and then uh the Ryder cup that just happened a couple months ago i was at whistling straits which is in sheboygan wisconsin it's not actually in sheboygan it's technically in kohler it's owned by the kohler company the ones who make all the plumbing stuff they have their own resort arm called Destination Kohler, which promotes tourism to the town of Kohler and also owns multiple five-star hotels and multiple golf courses, including Whistling Straits. So there is just an entire town and resort run by the Kohler company that does urinals and plumbing. Big plumbing, baby. Big plumbing has got their hands all up in the golf pot, and I love it. I'm, I'm glad that they're diversifying their portfolio. That's good. Financial, I can't even pretend to get that sentence out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, gentlemen, we have we have some decisions to make. Uh, we need to, to to convene our tribunal for the Hall of Guy. Of the two of yours, goddamn Chris Matthews catching that touchdown pass from Ryan Mallett was pretty sweet. Like, I do remember that game very vividly, and I couldn't have told you that Chris Matthews was the name, but getting to think of that game again was pretty phenomenal. God, I loved beating the Steelers with just an absolute JV squad. Chris Matthews is a hell of a guy, but I am, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a romantic when it comes to these things. And just the idea of you came in, you won the, the, the U.S. Women's Open. You're so respected by your peers that you become the president of the LPGA. The fact that her last tournament is in her hometown and I, and I love learning. Like, I, when, when Xavier started going into Chris Matthews, it did jog my memory. I yeah. remember that onside kick. I remember the Super Bowl catch. But to learn as much about Hillary Lunky as I just did, truly, I'm truly torn. But I think I would have to slight lean Lunky. I'm fine with, with Hillary Lunky. Just quick shout-out to Chris Matthews' agent. Called him at the security job and told him he was an idiot to get his ass on the plane. Okay, I, as all halls do, you know, there's a builder category as well. Here's, here, I think, is our compromise for this week. In this particular class for Hall of Guy, we uh, bring in Hillary Lunky, Neha Meyer. I think we also, from the builders committee, bring in Chris Matthews' agent. Uh, I don't know if we have his <laughs> name. Maybe we never learn his name. Maybe this is just a magical thing that we'll never get to know. But regardless of whether it's just the title, Chris Matthews agent, or we someday learn his name, Chris Matthews agent, welcome to the Hall of Guy, and Hillary Lunky, welcome <laughs> to the Hall of Guy. Love it. The category that I have for next week, something that's been on my mind a lot recently, I want to hear about guys that you remember who came incredibly close to a beautiful moment in history. I'm going to go ahead and say one because... We can, I think, disallow this from all three. Someone like an Armando Galarraga that will forever be remembered for what they did not quite do. It's a close I, but not quite. A close, a but, close not quite but not quite is, is, a, is a very succinct way of putting it. Close but not quite on our guys for next week is what I'd like to hear. We'll go ahead and just say again that we, we do have a Gmail that you can send any guys for. We will, I'm sure, if we ever get any messages there, Absolutely consider them for uh, induction and consideration. That is rememberingguys, all one word, at gmail.com. We got a Twitter. I have not missed a guy of the day yet since I started doing it. And that is at rememberguyspod on Twitter. We were on YouTube if you want to watch him as videos. There's no footage of us. You're still just listening to it as a video. But hey, maybe it's easier to hide at work that way. I get it. We all work from home and it's hell. And sometimes we need to have videos on in the background. You gentlemen got anything for us? Adoriza, shoot us a message. 
Matt Ariza, my goodness. Yo, this will be coming out on a, on a Sunday, so I'm sure that uh, I should revise what we've been saying to the now 8-0 and San Diego State University Aztecs. Uh, Going to take care of business this week. Legitimately, Matt Ariza, we just think punters are awesome. Like, Sam Cook and Johnny Hecker are so cool. I would absolutely just listen to someone talk about punting for hours. I think it's fascinating. The the only thing I would defer to is if Matt Ariza, if you want to go on a fellow punters podcast, Pat McAfee, McAfee. he's pretty good. That's the one podcast I would accept if you went to before us. If you go to Pat McAfee, that's okay. Otherwise, you got to come on here. You got to come on here. The brand. And hey, I will say again, I, I highly recommend if you have not already seen a Dorktown's history of the Atlanta Falcons, it's a laugh riot, as are the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, enjoy the rest of the World Series. Hopefully it's still competitive by this point. That's all I got for you guys this week. My name's James. I'm the permanent rotating guest host, Xavier. I'm the permanent co-host, Justin Diaz. And as former President John F. Kennedy once said, you should be an I'm guy. Take care, everybody. If I-